Well, if someone were to ask you what the uh, book of Revelation is about, remember Revelation singular, not plural, this is one revelation. If someone were to ask you what the book of Revelation is about, what would you say? Most often, people say it's about the end times or how the world will end. And that's not necessarily a wrong answer or inappropriate to answer, but it is incomplete. As we are a few weeks into this study, perhaps by now you know I offer you a different answer. And the different answer is not mine. We find it in the very opening words of this book. The first five words of the book of the Revelation are this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so in some ways, let's let God tell us what the book is about, right? It is about the revelation of Jesus Christ, the reigning king, the one who conquered death, the first and the last, the one with all authority. And so we could put it this way, the book of Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ to the entire world. Amidst all of the debates and various interpretations of how we should read and understand Revelation, here is what we all know. There it will come a time when everyone will unquestionably know that Jesus Christ is King, that He is Lord, and that everyone and everything that exists is subject to Him, accountable to Him, and will ultimately give to Him the praise of which He is worthy. And those who acknowledge Him as Savior will Enjoy the glory and beauty of his presence in a new heaven and a new earth. And those who do not have faith in him while here on this earth, they are, as Revelation 20 verse 15 says, they are thrown into the lake of fire. So therefore, this is about far more than how the world will end. In fact, the world doesn't end. Our existence doesn't end. Instead, our eternal existence is finalized, and through the unveiling of Jesus, God makes all things new. So we could put it this way. The book of Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ to the entire world and the ushering in of God's eternal and glorious kingdom. This is a perspective that gives hope and encouragement, does it not? And we understand so much more of this unveiling when we understand it was the final culmination of the entire revelation of God. God reveals himself to us all throughout the scripture. And so the revelation that we are studying is not to be disconnected from all of the ways in which God has revealed himself and has revealed his son and has revealed his spirit to us throughout the entire scripture. So next time someone asks you what the book of Revelation is about, I want to challenge you with something. Give them an answer without using the words end times. Give them an answer without using the word end times, and I trust that you will point them to the unveiling of Jesus, the full revealing of our Savior, and ask them, have you placed your faith in him? Because in what we see revealed in the Revelation, that question is a really big deal. In fact, I want to ask you that question today. 
Whether you're here in the room or whether you're tuning in online, I want to ask you, have you placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior? Have you confessed that you are a sinner, lost and desperate, dead in your trespasses and sins, as Ephesians would tell us, a, a child of wrath like the rest of mankind, in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is the only one able to forgive your sins and reconcile you to God the Father, your Creator, the one in whose image you are made. If you have not confessed Jesus as your Savior, friend, I would encourage you to do that today. You may not be able to put it in those words as I just put it, then that's fine. It doesn't take an eloquence of speech. It takes a humility of heart to simply come before the Father and say, God, I know that I am a sinner, right? Maybe you've never used that word to describe yourself before. That's how the Bible describes it. We are a sinner, meaning we've done things wrong. We have violated God's holiness, and we stand in desperate need of a Savior and, and someone to save us. Why? Because we can never save ourselves. So, friend, today I would ask you and encourage you to confess Jesus as your Savior. Now, because this book is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ, it's important for us to note where God begins. In chapter 1, John describes where he is at, how the vision came to him, and gives to us this image of Jesus as the awesome, glorious, and risen King. You remember that? Chapter 1, if you're with us. And from this vision, it seems fitting to me anyway, that this vision would continue to the content of what we find in chapter 4, which we'll study today. But it doesn't. It doesn't go from chapter 1 to chapter 4, which seems like, man, that would be just if I was writing the book, Right? Let's just take it from this vision of Jesus to the glorious throne room of God, the Father. But instead, this book was written down and was sent to local churches, seven of them, in fact. Real people, real places, real cities, real history. And instead of jumping right into the future-oriented things, God leads with churches, Churches with real strengths and real weaknesses. And why is that? Why these seven churches? Why chapters two and three? Because, as Mark Rogop once said, the church collectively and churches individually are essential to the plan of God. They're essential to the plan of God. Now, what I hear more and more today is people say this, I'm done with the institution of the church. Or they say it this way, you know, being a Christian is great without the church. It's just Jesus and me now. They express a desire to be spiritual but not religious. Many times this happens because of hurt and disappointment and unmet expectations. People become dissatisfied with the church, and I by no means want to dismiss the suffering some have experienced at the hands of the church, nor am I 
overlooking the reality of weaknesses in the church. We just studied two weeks of seven churches where there's both the positives and the negatives and the weaknesses we see, the sin that is present. We confess and repent of that, correct? We don't try to cover it or hide it. But what I want to draw our attention to is that God himself established the church and believes in the church. And so what do we mean when we say, you know, like, boy, I want Jesus but not the church? Well, when we say we want Jesus and not the church, we're saying I desire safety or protection, if you will, over God's design. Because of the hurt or woundedness or betrayal or even abuse, right? That I desire my my self-protection over God's design. Friends, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus protect himself from relational disappointment? He ate with and washed the feet of the one he knew who would betray him. He ate with and washed the feet of the one he knew would deny him. He invited 12 men to follow him, all of whom would fall asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was in the depth of his anguish over what was to come. And all of the 12, those whom deserted him in his arrest and trial and crucifixion. Jesus didn't protect himself from relational disappointment. He leaned in and he invited those in whom he knew would disappoint him. A second reason, when we say we want Jesus and not the church, we're saying I desire convenience and comfort over God's design, oftentimes. Life is easier if I don't have to mess with the church. I can pursue other things with my time. I don't have to deal with people, the P word, right, people. Friends, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus pursue convenience and comfort? Philippians chapter 2, one of many places we could go to, but tells us very plainly, Jesus emptied himself to become like us. He humbled himself, right? Was it convenient or comfortable for Jesus to be born as a baby? At times I just think, God, why did why'd you do it that way? Like, why didn't you just send Jesus to earth as an adult, right? I mean, why, why have him grow up? I mean, we don't have much about his childhood anyway. I mean, why is it that God would do this? But we know that Jesus had to grow in wisdom and stature just like we do. He experienced all the manner of temptation in life just as we do. That was not convenient or comfortable for him. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even to the point of death on a cross. And in so doing, Philippians 2 continues, Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So from the glorious vision of the reigning Christ in chapter 1 to the awesome description of the throne room of chapter 4 and what is to come, God reveals his message to the church and through the church. He doesn't abandon the church. The church matters. And what's going on right here, right now, matters. What's happening in every gospel-believing church in Plymouth, Indiana, and around the globe matters. Why? Because it's linked to the overall plan of Jesus to reclaim the world. 
Now, God clearly reveals, as I've mentioned, the imperfections of the church and calls us to repent. Again, I ask myself the question at times, like, God, I mean, if I was writing this story, do you, wouldn't you just, like, those, those, like, sins and weaknesses, wouldn't you just, like, want those in the background? I mean, let's just, let's just highlight the good things, right? No, God, God points out the weaknesses. I ask, how can God be so honest with the imperfections of his people? Because the focus, as we've said all along, is on Jesus, not the church. And so why is it that some people give up on the church? Oftentimes it's because their eyes are on the church, not on Jesus. And what they see in the church are the imperfections, right? Those things that hurt us, that disappoint us, that all of those things, right? And so when they, when they have their eyes on the church, those of us who are imperfect, instead of keeping their eyes on the one who is perfect, then we become disillusioned and disappointed. Therefore, they abandon the very thing that God lifts up and says, this is my plan. So we, the universal church, all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, are the lampstand that is to shine brightly the light of Christ until the day when his glory is fully revealed and everyone is made to declare Jesus is Lord. We are the lampstand. And the critique in these letters is not because God is down on the church The critique is because he is our loving Heavenly Father who desires for his glory to be known through us. And he is so, listen, he is so patient and kind and gracious toward us. As we at times flounder in our weaknesses, right? I mean, God's call to just... Not to repent, to, to see our sin, to, to, to remember his truth, and to, to return to, to living for his glory. He is so patient and kind with us. And as we endeavor to be this light, God in his gracious love and that kindness, he says, let me give you seven case studies that will show you the blessing of remaining faithful of glorifying me, and the challenges that you will face. And that's what we see in these seven letters. I'm kind of coming back to this because we we walked through those seven churches, those seven letters rather quickly, didn't we? Right. So Revelation reveals to us that until the full unveiling of Jesus, remember, the church will be tempted to value truth at the expense of love. Remember Ephesus. Until the full revealing of Christ, the church will experience persecution and need to persevere. Remember Smyrna. By the way, one of the first questions people always ask when you get into Revelation, things like that, just tell me, will the church be here during the tribulation? Because I don't want to have to go through that. Friend, the church is being persecuted today, right, and has been since sin entered the world. Those who have followed God since the resurrection of Christ, the church has been persecuted, and we must persevere. Thirdly, the church will be tempted to compromise truth by mixing it with philosophies of the world. Remember Pergamum, right? This kind of syncretistic mind, the temptation of taking the the truth of the gospel and, and mixing it with some of the lies of the world. 
That's Pergamum. The church will be tempted toward being active in ministry, but passive towards sin. Remember Thyatira. The church will be tempted to blend in with culture more than stand out from culture for the name of Jesus. Remember Sardis. And the church will need to remain active in service to Christ while patiently enduring hardship. Remember Philadelphia. And lastly, the church will be tempted toward a lukewarm, gross experience of complacency and self-confidence rather than be faith-filled and Holy Spirit-empowered. Remember Laodicea. So these letters, to me, reveal like everything the church faces and everything the church experiences and everything that the church is seeking to be for the glory of God is wrapped up in the midst of the content of these seven churches. This is God's gracious warning to us and call to us to fight the battle well and when sin is present to repent and return. Remember, repent, return. That's the pattern. Repentance starts in the mind, changing the way we think, calling sin what it is, and turning from it to honoring Christ in both thought and action. And the only time the church, the bride and body of Christ, will be set free from these temptations is when the bridegroom, Jesus, the reigning king, is fully unveiled and God makes all things new. So as we put all this together, now God reveals why we, the church, should listen That we should listen, those who have ears to hear, that we should listen to his call and to his warning and why we should find hope and encouragement in his words. With that, let me read Revelation chapter 4 for us. We'll read the entire chapter. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. 
And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Amen. We see this throne room vision of God begin with the words, After this I looked. And so there's this sequential aspect to the vision. John's giving us the next step. And remember, again, it's a singular vision, not multiple visions. So the same voice in chapter 1, verse 10, calls him up to a throne room in heaven, the throne room of God. This isn't the only throne room vision in Scripture. I would encourage you at your own time to go to Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 7 and read of the other ways in which God ushered men into his throne room to give them a gift, to give us a glimpse of his glory, right? What's God trying to do? He's trying to help us understand of how just majestic and holy and awesome he is by giving us these glimpses of his throne room. There are wonderful similarities between those visions. There are differences as well. Let me just say this. The differences are not conflicts. It is God revealing his glory and sovereignty and all of its brilliance. See them collectively. He, God the Father, the one on the throne, right? Who is on the throne in Revelation 4? It is the Father. And he had the appearance of Jasper. I believe Jasper, this, this combination of red and yellow and brown and green. And, and we see the carnelian that is mentioned, the brownish red. And so the beauty of these colors springing forth out of the presence of God. The glory of God is described by colors. You see, God the Father is a spirit being and his essence is described in different ways he is brilliant and here the brilliance of the colors are meant to describe the beauty of his glory later in chapter 5 next week pastor jason will walk us through that and in chapter 5 we see the lamb christ jesus the bodily raised immortal incorruptible one here we have the father on the throne and then we See, around the throne, look at the way that the, the chapter unfolds, around the throne. Second part of verse 3, there was a rainbow with the appearance of, of an emerald. I assume all of us at some point in life have kind of been captured by the beauty, the vibrant colors of a rainbow. It was a few years back. Were we able to get the picture, Emily? Yeah, a few years back when I arrived at the church early one morning, this is not photo whatever shops, right? Uh, this, is, this is the image I caught from my phone. It was a morning where there was a little bit of rain, so all the glistening, and this was, this was it, the beauty of the rainbow. Right? I just stood there for probably 10 minutes and just gave glory to God, right? So you've been captured by the beauty of a rainbow. Here, the rainbow is in the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne, verse 4 says, there were 24 thrones with 24 elders, White garments, golden crowns. Now, one of the first questions that come, who are these elders? We're not told specifically anywhere in Scripture specifically who the elders are. 
I love it like we have at the chap- end of chapter 1 when we are told that the seven lampstands are the seven churches and the seven stars are the seven angels or messengers of the churches. Like, I love it when God gives us that clarity. We don't have the clarity of that in the Word of God. So we're left to kind of our understanding through as we examine the wholeness of God's revelation to us throughout the Scriptures. Who, who are these elders? Who might they be? And there are some different perspectives. Some believe they would be angelic beings. One of the things that I see incongruent with that is we never see angels anywhere else wearing crowns. Crowns are the reward of faithful men and women. Israel, some believe they're representatives of Israel, the priestly, uh, the priesthood of Israel, more specifically, because if we go back to 1 Chronicles chapters 23 through 25, we read that amongst the, the thousands of priests that were present in Israel, right, the tribe of Levi, that, that in 1 Chronicles 23 through 25, David divides them up because they couldn't all serve in the temple at one time. And so they're divided up into 24 groups in which they would serve at different times. And so some believe the number 24 draws it back to that representative of representation of the priesthood of, of the Israelites. And, and perhaps some believe they're representatives of the church, the crowns, the garments. We've already seen in chapters 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches that the crown of reward is mentioned to Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10, to be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Crowns are mentioned to Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 11. I am coming soon, Jesus said. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So maybe the clothing, the garments, the crowns draw us to conclude they are representatives of the church. And still others, as a fourth possibility, believe that the 24 are the 12 apostles and 12 representatives of the 12 tribes of Israel, numbering 24. Ephesians 2 tells us that the household of God is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. My encouragement to you is to not get distracted with debate about who the elders are. We can get so distracted by who is around the throne that we lose sight of the one who is on the throne. So... Who it is, whoever it is, these elders, it is God's responsibility, and that is where we will leave it. Whoever they are, it's what they do, right? Whoever they are, it is what they do that is most important for us to take note of. So from the throne, verse 5, flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, Reminiscent of Exodus chapter 19, you want yet another exercise you could do in your own time in the Word, go read Exodus chapter 19, when, when the nation of Israel was at the foot of the mountain, Moses had ascended, God had called him up, and, and that's where God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, right, and you read of this incredibly awesome scene of God's power and majesty on display as the people of Israel are just caught in awe of God's glory, From the throne are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And then we go back to before the throne, right? So just notice how this is kind of unveiling here in sequence. Before the throne, verse 5, burning were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We've noted this, the seven spirits, not necessarily distinct spirits, but the number seven being the number of divine perfection. And, and we've noted 
possibly, right, that the seven spirits here are just representative of the Holy Spirit of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It makes total reasonable sense that the presence of the Spirit of God would be here before the throne of God. And these spirits representing the Holy Spirit, finished, complete, perfect. Remember in the book of Acts, when the disciples were waiting for the Spirit of God to descend on them, right? Jesus told them to go and wait. How did the Spirit come? He descended on them as tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit is often represented with fire. So these seven torches, which are the seven spirits of God, are before the throne. And then before the throne, in in verse 6, there's the sea of glass like crystal. It's referenced as well in chapter 15, verse 2 of Revelation. But my mind goes back to 1 Kings chapter 7, 23 through 26, in which we read that the part of the temple furnishings of the temple that Solomon built, that he created a sea of cast metal, three inches thick. And it's not real clear how this sea of cast metal was laid out in the temple, but apparently it was, it was there and it was part of it. And what was it meant to do? It was meant to, to reflect all of the beauty and the, and the glory and, and majesty of the temple as God had, had laid it out and the gold and the glistening and all that. Like the sea was, was designed to reflect his glory. So here before the throne of God, we have this sea of glass like crystal. You've seen this before, a calm lake or a calm body of water, perhaps early in the morning, right? You go out and, and the sun is just coming up or, or the sun is setting when it's the calmness of the sea. And, and when that water is that calm, it's like a sea of glass, right? And what does it do? It, re- it reflects whatever the surrounding is. So the sea of glass designed to reflect the glory and the beauty of God that is here. All of the color and the, and the majestic nature of this scene is reflected in this sea that is like crystal. And as amazing as this is, friend, just remember that we don't have to wait till we get to heaven to see the majesty of God. He has given to us an entire universe. The heavens declare the glory of God. If you're so caught up in the busyness of life that you fail to stop and see the beauty of God's glory that is around you every day, might I be so bold as to say shame on us, right? And we also see the glory of God in one another. Not only the intricacy of our body and how it's designed and how outstanding and awesome our body is, as God has structured it, but also to see, man, you are created in the image of God. You are made in his image. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, part of God's desire is that we see his glory in each other. We don't have to wait. But man, it's going to be good. And we see this throne room. And we turn to around the throne, verse 6, the second part. On each side are four living creatures. Verse 7 describes them a bit. The first is like a lion, the second like an ox, the third as the face of a man, and the fourth an eagle in flight. 
Each of them have, uh, have full, are full of eyes in front and behind. That's referenced twice in the second part of verse 6 and verse 8. And, and they have these six wings. It's reminiscent of if you go to read Isaiah chapter 6, if you read the vision there in particular, you see the, the, the seraphim, and they had their wings as well. What were their wings used for? To cover themselves from top to bottom, almost as if to say, not even the angelic beings themselves, who which are created as we are created, right? But not even the angelic beings can, can stand to be in the presence of God's holiness. They have to cover themselves, and here we see wings present as well. The eyes... Whatever these living creatures are, it seems that they're, they are angelic beings, right? It seems that they have this. It says the one has a face like a man or as a man, and, and so it's not that it is a man. So these, these seem to be angelic beings, the cherubim, the seraphim of heaven here around the throne. More importantly than what they are is the message that they are proclaiming, that they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They never cease. They never stop. The repeated word holy, stating the complete and total purity of God. Whole, when something is repeated three times in the scriptures, it's intended to communicate to us the fullness of it, the, 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 the man, the almost aspect of it you can't put into words, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As holy, God is set apart from us because he alone is the one who was and is and is to come. Everything we experience is created other than God himself. They never cease. There's a constant worship service going on around the throne of God. Verse 9 says, whenever these living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, that the 24 elders fall down and worship him. Weren't we just told that they never cease? Yeah, we're told they never cease. So whenever, that means all the time, right? These creatures are giving glory and honor and thanks. And as they do, the elders are falling down before him and worshiping him. The worship the living creatures offer brings response from the 24 elders. They cast their crowns before the throne in other words, if the crown says we understand our reward of our faithfulness, the victory, right, to those who conquer, as we read in, in chapters 2 and 3, if the crown is the reward of the faithful, the ones who conquer, then saying, man, what we're going to do in heaven is like we're not going to take our crown and go, ha, ha, thank you, and, you know, have this over. No, we're going to say, even, even what you have blessed me with as a reward of my faithfulness belongs to you, O God, here. Worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy are you, deserving are you, our Lord and God, right? There is none other. And you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. One question as I read that verse, it's like, how does God receive it if it is already his? Right? How does God receive it if it's already It's already his. You, you, you probably have seen or you've been at a sporting event where they put up the cheer meter, 
right? What's the cheer meter designed to do is make the crowd get louder because when the crowd gets louder, it amps up the team even more, you know, and, and, and giving them the energy to, to pursue victory. This call in heaven is not like a cheer meter. God doesn't need us to be glorious and to have honor and to have all. It's already his. God is already these things. And in fact, so much more so than we could ever imagine. So our praise does not expand the glory of God or expand his honor or, or, or give him power. He, it is already his. We're just simply acknowledging what is true. And why is it that we give him this praise? It says, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The word for here can also be translated because. Because you created all things. The reason for this praise is because God created all things. In other words, this scene that is given to us at the end draws us back to the beginning. We worship you, O Heavenly Father, because you created all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All of it is created by God, by His will. This universe exists because God wants it to be here. You are here because God wants you to be here. I don't know if you've seen in the news, I don't know how long it's been now, but somewhat recent past, they opened what's called the Sphere in Las Vegas. Seems quite amazing. I don't know if anybody's been there, but it's this whole structure created out of it's LED or what it is, but man, from the outside, they can make it reflect, you know, and show the image of just about anything possible in this world. And you get on the inside, and it's the same thing. You can just imagine the immersion of all of your senses, even the seats, I think, make you feel, right, what's happening and whatever is taking place. And, and I think it even has its own weather, it's, as it's described, right? They can make it do what it wants on the inside. And you just look and say, man, how amazing it is that man could create such an astounding uh, piece of architecture that, that envelops all of our senses. Friend, I'm just telling you, yeah, go check it out if you want to. But the throne room of heaven blows it away. Any attempt we have as humanity to try and show forth our own ingenuity and all of that which comes from God himself, friend, we just have to realize what awaits us is far more astounding than we could ever create. It's overwhelming. Perhaps another aspect of your own study in the Word of God would be this, to study all the times in the Scriptures that 
God as creator is used as foundation to give him praise or to respond in love and obedience. Time and time and time again, we are drawn back into the reality of God as creator as the foundation for what is to stir our praise and to draw us to him in life. One such example is Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. Read the last part with me. After the image of its creator. See that? Why would we seek every day in life to put off what is of our old self, meaning our sin nature and that which identifies us with our our fallen state? And, And why would we seek to put on what is of the new self and that which is being renewed in Christ? Because it's that which is in the knowledge of our creator. We're seeking to acknowledge him as the one who has made us. And we're seeking to live life in in, in that reflection of his glory and his image. There's three so what's as we come to the finish of chapter four that I want to recall our attention to. The first is is more collective than just chapter four. It gets to what I started with here is kind of a a drawing back into chapters two and three. So the first so what would be never forget the church is a fundamental part of God's plan. And friend, you are the church. The church is people. So to deny it is to deny his plan. A second, so what, would be to ponder often the glory and majesty of God. Like often meaning like even multiple times a day, often. The glory of God ought to be at the forefront of our minds, and so often it's not, right? We know this. We, 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 we understand this together. Like the, the things of life draw us and distract us and distort us, and, and yes, we have, we have to live life. I'm not saying you just walk around with this you know, vision of God on your brain. But, but every aspect of our life is lived in response to the glory and majesty of God. And as we ponder his glory and majesty, it will result in humility and heart, uh, wholehearted praise and renewal in Christ-likeness. Where do we begin? Where, do we, where is the beginning point of every day of our journey as a Christ follower? It's by pondering the majesty and the glory of God. And why is that? Well, number three, because he is your creator. You owe your life and everything about your life to him. May we live in such a way. May we live with this knowledge and not only just knowledge in our minds of, yes, that's what I believe, but a knowledge that that envelops our whole life, that takes our heart and captures our heart, captures our soul, so that the way in which we live life, whether we're at work or whether we're at home, whether we're with friends, whether we're by ourselves, whatever we are doing, right? Whatever you do, 1 Corinthians tells us, do it all to the glory of God. May the Spirit of God strengthen us in that.
that pursuit. Father, we thank you for this vision that you have given to us. We thank you that you chose to re reveal yourself to us. And, and not only this vision of your throne room, but in other visions as well. Lord, you've sought by your grace to give us some glimpse, some manner of understanding of who you are in all of your glory. And I pray that we get it as much as we can in this fallen world, this broken world, in the nature of our minds that is, that is weak. Lord, I pray that we get it. And I pray we get it to the point of not just being able to say, wow, that's cool. But may we get it to the point where it drives deep into the heart of our soul that, that, that every day, Lord, that it becomes the motivation of living for us to, to, to represent you well, to reflect your glory well, to pursue holiness because you are holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty was and is and is to come. In Jesus' name we pray.